Hey there, and welcome to the review of the Stargate franchise. In these podcast episodes, we'll be reviewing from the perspective of me, Layla, an avid fan of all things entertainment, and shall we say diverse perspective? For I identify as a cisgender queer woman with a physical disability who is also a licensed cognitive behavioral addiction and developmental psychologist who herself has complex PTSD, and also I'm an astrologer novice to boot. For I do believe it is all connected. To then also be born into a dysfunctional family unit, you can imagine it's been a life filled with some quite transformative experiences. What better way to utilize this unique combination of strengths to share them with the world? And that is the goal of this whole enterprise, sharing and caring. Currently, the episodes are still just reviewed by me, myself, and I. I, for one, am madly interested in what all y'all think about the following. So, as I believe the arts are humanity's greatest gift, for it allows us to experience and tap into the realm of infinite possibilities, let's get started. today's episode, we'll be reviewing Hathor. The original air date was October 24th, 1997. The story was written by David Bennett Karen and J. Larry Carroll. The teleplay was by Jonathan Glasner, and the episode was directed by Brad Turner. And I'm really interested in what other people think of this episode, for this episode was heavily criticized, and the series writers themselves acknowledged that it was one of the weakest episodes of the entire series, and I got to agree, it is a bad episode. There are so many story difficulties that thankfully later on they altered this storyline to make a little more sense in the Stargate universe but despite that I still do kind of like this episode because it gave me a few laughs and I will be sharing those moments and I wonder if that sort of kind of redeemed the episode in your eyes as well or if you're like nah it sucks all around just delete this from your viewing pleasure because there's no pleasure to be had which is ironic seeing that Hathor is the goddess amongst other things of pleasure and i have to state this in no means is a dig at the actress who plays hathor sue ann brown because she was fabulous despite all that she performed admirably in this episode some interesting fun facts specific to this episode is that they introduced the concept of go old queens although i do think that the way that they did it in this episode is also the reason why it's one of the weakest episodes of the series and luckily in later years they change it a bit and they make it more believable and i think it deals with all the plot holes that this storyline left also this is the first episode in the series so far where the team does not travel through the stargate as in they stay on earth for the entirety of the episode and apart from the very first start of the episode where none of our team members are, the entire episode takes place in Stargate Command in Cheyenne Mountain. And as I want to do in episodes that I find in some way, shape, or form lacking, I grab hold onto something that I do find interesting, and in this case, it is the Egyptian mythology, obviously, which is the whole fucking reason I ever started watching Stargate in the first place. So, as the writers in this episode blended a shit ton of ancient Egyptian mythology into one person, you can be sure that your girl Layla here will be trying to make sense of thousands, and then I do mean like three, four, five thousand years of ever-evolving religious mythology into a seemingly coherent story. 
No matter where you learned concerning this Stargate episode, maybe my episode redeems it a little bit, I hope so. But other than that, at least my episode could be considered slightly educational. But I delve into it mainly also not just because I love it, but because the Stargate universe is built on the ancient Egyptian pantheon of gods, and we will be meeting a few of them throughout the series. So some of the names that I will be mentioning will grace us with their presence at some point somewhere in this show. So therefore, I thought it's a, well for me, it's a win-win, and hopefully maybe when you see that episode and you go like wait i think we talked about that before maybe i should go back into the hathor review episode again what did she say about that in that sense this review episode will embrace hathor even though the actual stargate episode not so much Prosper, always. The episode starts off with the MGM lion roaring. Opening scene of the episode might cause the viewer to go like, wait, I thought we were watching Stargate. For the first image of the episode is the Mayan temple pyramid, the Chichen Itza, which by no means has anything to do at all with ancient Egyptian civilization, religion, pantheon of gods, nothing. And yet, as they go into a chamber inside Chichen Itza, our little Daniel gets redeemed! For they are about to discover that the ancient civilizations on Earth were indeed connected. For within this Mayan temple, they find an Egyptian sarcophagus. It is interesting that they do seem to know of Daniel, including that he was left right out of academia for his preposterous ideas, claiming a connection between various ancient civilizations. I would say that this proves Daniel squarely in the I fucking told you so column. Right before they get the chance to tell the world and give Daniel the credit that he is due, they awake Hathor and are killed for their efforts. Interesting to note in this scene is she awakens and apparently speaks perfect English, but wouldn't she have spoken ancient Egyptian? as Ra did in the Stargate movie, especially after we learn that she slept in that sarcophagus for a minimum of 2,000 years. So even though she is in Mexico, it would have made more sense for her to speak Mayan, ancient Egyptian, but not perfect English. Another remarkable thing about the Go'uld Hathor in this episode, but the series overall, is the continuous we speak. I'm gonna just go ahead and believe that this is in honor of the fact that they blended so many Egyptian goddesses into Hathor in this specific episode. Other than that, I have no clue why they chose to do this. If someone knows the reason why the writers chose this or have their own theories on this, by all means do share. I'm really curious. Next, we see the sarcophagus in the gate room with the team and General Hammond, and one must ask, why did they put the sarcophagus in the gate room? Was it the only room big enough? How did they even get it in there, as it is many, many, many miles underground, and it definitely won't fit in the elevator? A question many more seem to have asked, including and raising the infinitely more important question, however did they get the gate in there in the first place? And I am not going to spoil it, for it will be answered in an upcoming episode in a wonderful way. So if you want to know how they did that, stay tuned. Immediately noting their calm demeanor, we quickly learn that they only know of the sarcophagus and not the Lady Gould found inside of it, which seems to otherwise have been an omission of epic proportions. I'm guessing that after she murdered those archaeologists, she didn't stick around. 
As the team and General Hammond are discussing the similarities between this thing and the one that brought Daniel and Sharae back to life on Ra's ship in the movie, something that I will come back to in a minute, makes you realize that O'Neill and Daniel are the only ones who actually truly know what this thing is. Well, them and Tilk, of course. Though Egyptian buff that I am, I gotta say it looks nothing like the actual ancient Egyptian sarcophagi. Personally, I like the real ones better. They're a lot more imposing and massive. This one's a little too flat and shiny. But for a TV show, it's not bad. It certainly draws in the eye. And I do think that it's a nice concept of them turning its symbolism into a healing tanning bed. Or a revival box would be a better descriptor. And that is also where I stumble a bit. Because Daniel says this is the same device that brought me and Sharae back from the dead. And I'm like, near death, yeah, but dead dead, no. For then we go into the whole zombie slash whatever afterlife principles one holds true. And I'm sorry, but I just cannot get past the distinct difference of a soul and reanimated tissue. You could say the brain takes time to fully die off after the heart is stopped or when anything but the brain is gravely injured. And after three to four minutes, there is brain damage. But it has been discovered that the brain slowly dies off over the course of hours, sometimes days after someone is pronounced dead. So I'm considering that that is the window of opportunity where this healing tanning bed can be used for revival purposes, as in someone isn't fully dead, but someone who is completely dead or the brain is completely damaged to the point of no repair, you're dead dead. And then the enhanced healing capabilities and possibilities of the gold sarcophagi are greatly diminished. We all gotta die sometime. To me, that was an important distinction to make. And funnily enough, not just me. Although that takes many, many, many seasons, I think, before that actually becomes a topic of conversation. But again, that is why I love Stargate and all the nerdy people that are in this fandom. We made the writers show up and actually do the research to make it scientifically believable. Another reason why I love this franchise. You can go as in-depth as you want and it'll be plausible, funny, relatable, but even for us nerds, it is brought to you in a way that it actually holds true to a certain extent. And that, in my opinion, is magic. As they are discussing the sarcophagus, an airman comes in to inform the general that there is a lady up top, stating she knows that the Stargate is there. This piques their interest enough that they invite her into an isolation room, where Colonel O'Neill, General Hammond, and Daniel go check it out. Which is a bad idea, as the lady puts the whammy on two out of the three men in what, like five minutes flat? And okay, I have a lot to say about this one particular scene. For one, what the fuck happened to her hair? It is badly or hastily done. Her bangs are completely disturbed. Luckily, they correct this later in the episode. But no matter how much time there is between rewatches, this continues to annoy me throughout this entire scene. Also, at the start of the episode, she has bright baby blue eyeshadow and clear blue elements on her headdress. Yet later, all these blue accents are gone. She even arrives at the mountain without any makeup on, and later on in the episode, she suddenly has some eyeliner and lipstick back on. Surprisingly, they kind of seem to lack consistency in this main guest star of the episode, where, like previously, I 
called them out on a storyline not adding up. And then when I rewatched it and checked it, I was like, oh, no, 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 they, they did it right. Oh, yeah, sorry, my bad. They were so good at that. But in this episode, were they on a time constraint? Like, what was the reason that no one fixed her bangs in that scene? Why she suddenly showed up without any makeup on? And then later in the episode, she continues to don multiple outfits. Her makeup continuously changes. That just, as a show that usually was on top of this, surprised me in this episode. Hathor seemed smart enough to turn off her go-old voice, yet she keeps speaking in the we. Another thing of note is that General Hammond stops Daniel from revealing that Ra is dead, not let alone that they were the ones that killed him. But when interrogating Hathor, it's initially Colonel Jack O'Neill who starts mentioning the monk buddies of Daniel on Chulak, which, hello, breach of confidential information. And so is Daniel's response in saying it's also Abedonian. If this lady wasn't who she actually, you know, turns out to be, both of those remarks are complete breaches of confidence. At this point in time, they all believe that she is loco. It's the wackadoodle bunny thinking that she is the ancient Egyptian goddess Hathor. Little do they know that she is actually the go-old who embodies the persona Hathor. That this isn't just someone who lived it, this is someone who lived it and also happens to be a go-old. Apart from that, it's interesting to note that while conversing, they briefly tackled the yah wackerdoodle history. In the thousands of years of religion, Hathor was once both the wife and described as the daughter of Ra. And the incestuous creepo factor is off the charts in the ancient Egyptian pantheon. Yeah. And in the episode, they quickly move past that, but still honor the history, yet choose not to linger too long on that little wrinkle. Let's call it a wrinkle. When I delve a little more deeply into that, you will notice how much. And yeah, ew. And seeing that it concerns mythological beings and not necessarily actual people, but they were gods. And what kind of example are you setting? No matter how you spin it, it's creepy. But I choose to look at it as a hypothetical and that it was just a lot of ever-evolving religion adapting and merging and blending. And I mean, we get into it a little later, so I wonder how y'all deal with this. Because it's not just in the ancient Egyptian pantheon where incest apparently is a big thing. And a normalized thing, which I find more disturbing. But like I said, we'll get back to that later. <laughs> Daniel's brief description of her to O'Neill and Hammond perfectly lays the foundation for O'Neill's joke of Hathor being the goddess of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And it's a nice touch, though a tad short-sighted and little cheapening of who Hathor represents. I mean, she was the goddess of women love, beauty, music, dance, fertility, and pleasure. The Greeks identified her with their Aphrodite. And also something that does not at all come up in this episode is that Hathor is often depicted wearing a headdress of cow horns with a sun disc between them or as a cow or a lioness. All of these embodiments of Hathor have no place in this Stargate universe as of yet. Which is a great shame, for Hathor was worshipped across ancient Egypt and Nubia, from royal temples to domestic family altars, and she was one of the most important divinities in the ancient Egyptian and Nubian pantheons for many thousands of years. I was a little disappointed that they were so dismissive while they wrote the entire franchise around the ancient Egyptian pantheon. 
when I researched, they earned back their props for me. For it turns out that the Stargate franchise has actually written their own very extended history on Hathor, particularly for their games, namely the Fantastic Frontiers Stargate Season 1 for the Stargate SG-1 role-playing game of 2003. And they also mentioned Hathor in Stargate SG-1 Living Gods Stargate System Lords. So if you want to learn more about the Stargate SG-1 interpretation of the Go'uld Hathor, go check that out. When I learned this, I was like, I'm sorry, what? There's like a D&D Stargate-style version out there? How do I not know this? This is for real, like, the greatest fandom ever. Well, one of the greatest. I'm sorry, Supernatural has you beat there, at least for me. With the whole family don't end with blood, and the charities, and the always keep fighting, and random acts of kindness of it all. I mean, we got Guinness World Records, people. We even got our own star, thanks to Misha Collins. But we were talking Stargate, sorry. <laughs> There's room in my heart for both of you. Daniel's behavior makes him an easy mark, and thus he is also the first one to get whammied. For when he goes to unbind her hands, muttering, surprised we didn't chain her to the bed too, what is she gonna do, beat us up? And here I'm guessing his mind was already on the sex, otherwise, where does the notion tie her to the bed come from? <laughs> Are we living a secret fantasy there, Daniel? Also, like, dude, never underestimate your opponent. Now she can get close enough to put the whammy on you as a way of thanking you. And another thing about this scene was that her speech, though it's not in her gold voice, is still very gold-ish, meaning packed with some serious condescension. Kneel before your goddess, hello! And another clear red flag in my eyes is that she uses the word chapa'ai. That is another dead giveaway, for that is a go-oldish word for the Stargate. I mean, hello, all the clues were there, people. Disappointing. Now, with her claim to be the mother of all pharaohs, is of course hinting to her queen bee, or in this case, maybe more of a queen S for symbiote, or L for larva, or M for maggots. And, like, here I'm gonna delve into the mythology of it all. For all the things that is attributed to her or that she herself mentions, including this mother of all, blends the Egyptian mythology of pretty much all the goddesses into one persona. For instance, the described traits and history are those of Tefnut, Sekhmet, Isis, and Hathor combined. And now, for those interested in how, what, where on these mythological tales, here's a lowdown of all things concerning the ancient Egyptian pantheon. It's a bit of a doozy, as it is derived from thousands of years of mythology, coupled with a shit ton of incest, so be warned. I'm gonna try and tell it in a way that makes some sense, but keep in mind this is thousands of years of ever-evolving religion, so I hope you can make some sense of it, even if it's just a little icky with all the incest, but let's try and look past that for a bit as it's not actual incest but just awkward storytelling of mythological something i guess due to the limited players on the board i mean i chose to do this in depth because these names are gonna keep coming up for the Go'uls have embodied mainly the ancient egyptian pantheon and although the writers clearly didn't care very much about blending and rewriting history as far as this can be seen as history, and it may not necessarily be relevant in telling a good story, which, you know, granted, but me, as an avid ancient Egyptian fan, you know I'm gonna be calling them out on it. So, okay, let's kick it off. Once upon a time, there was Nun and Naunet, who represented the primeval waters from which the creator gods came forth. The creator gods being Apophis, or in ancient Egyptian, they are known as Apep, the god of chaos and darkness, 
Ma'at, the creator god of order and justice. Ta, creator god of making things, the patron of craftsmen. Atum, the sun god, the god of creation and also known throughout history as Atum, Atum Ra, Re, Jeffrey. Or in the Stargate franchise, he is just continuously referred to as Ra. And last but not least, there's also Thoth, the creator god of reckoning, learning, writing, and wisdom, as they were the creator of languages, scribe, interpreter, and advisor of the gods, and also the representative of the sun god Atumra. Thoth emerged simultaneously with Atumra and served as their voice. Atumra conceived the world, but it was Thoth who spoke the words that actually created it. In this capacity, Thoth was the personification of divine speech. The family tree grew as Atumra went on to have two children, Shu and Tefnut. Shu was the god of peace, lions, air, and wind, and his sis-slash-wifey, Tefnut, was the deity of moisture, dew, and rain. They then, too, had two children, called Nut and Chep. Nut being the sky god and Chep being the god of the earth, and it was believed that Chep and Nut were born gripped tightly in each other's arms and had to be separated by their father Shu, or air. Another more disturbing version of that story is that Nut was the consort of her grandpappy, Atum Ra Rei, and became angry with Nut and Hep for having sexual intercourse with each other. And you would think that he would be upset due to the fact that they were siblings, but seeing that he was her grandpappy... Nah. Anywho, he commanded his son, the air god Shu, to separate the siblings slash lovers. And like I said, the ick factor is off the charts here. But I think that is what you get when you're all born from the same being. You're related. Which is also the reason why that story of Adam and Eve and their offspring and like at the ending of Noah with his family on the ark always creeps me out a little bit because it would mean that we are all related. So basically what all of these myths, tales, whatever, are sayings that we are all the product of extensive, in-depth, endless rounds of incest. And at what level does it go extra, extra bad? For we all know that inbreeding results in a greater risk of producing offspring with severe congenital birth defects, and we are therefore warned against it. But how is it then that we are not all grossly disfigured, or more logically, perhaps, have died the fuck out millennia ago, seeing that we're all just a steaming pile of incest but that is a tangent inside a tangent or a brain fart within a well it's not necessarily a brain fart as i do hope this is a more of an educational exposition and less of a brain farty one but like this is a rabbit hole people i like how do you make sense of that part of whatever religion or convictions that you hold on evolution theory or our creation in whatever way, shape, or form you see that, that is always the part that I get lost. Like, honestly, seriously, does someone have a good explanation or a solid reasoning around this? Please tell me. Release me from this burden. Moving on. The god Thoth then felt sorry for Nut and Geb, okay, and created five extra days in the calendar of 360 days that were not subject to Ra's curse of separation. According to most myths, during this time, Nut bore four children. Osiris, Set or Seth, Isis, and Nephthys. Set married Nephthys, and Osiris married Isis. Osiris became the god of agriculture, writing, and the arts, and is said to have transformed humanity from barbarism to civilization. I think probably the best known of all the ancient Egyptian myths is that of Osiris and his jealous brother Set, as Set murdered his brother by tricking him to get into a beautifully adorned wooden box, and subsequently threw said box with bro in the river Nile. To make sure Osiris couldn't be revived, Set then chopped Osiris' body into 14 pieces and scattered Osiris' remains 
remains all over Egypt. With the help of her sister Nephthys, Isis searched all of Egypt to find each part of Osiris. And she collected all but one. Osiris's penis. Personally, I gotta love myths that actually specifically reference a dude's penis. And just, you know, fun fact. It is the first thing that fish and maggots eat because all that soft tissue, yum. So it's not specifically mentioned, but I'm guessing that fish just had a little snack before she recovered all of Osiris. I'm just lying. Then Isis worked with Thoth, the god of magic, and Anubis, the god of funerary rites and death, to sew Osiris back together, embalm his body, wrap it in linen, thus making Osiris the first mummy. Anubis was always considered to be the son of Ra and Hasat, which is associated with Hathor, but after his assimilation into the Osiris myth, he was then described as the son of an adulterous relationship between Osiris and Nephthys. Others claimed that he was the son of Nephthys and Set. Either way, yeah. Incestuous relationships abound. Isis could use her magic to resurrect Osiris for one day and one day only, and after they copulated, which you, you know, do for that one day, of course, Osiris passed on into the afterlife to rule as king of the underworld, thus shifting Anubis's role from being the primary god of the dead to a subordinate position to Osiris when he became ruler of the underworld. Anubis became the god of mummification and the guardian of tombs, while Osiris assumed the role of the ruler of the underworld and judge of the dead. During this day together, Isis and Osiris conceived a child, which was made possible by Isis crafting Osiris a newly, magically, shining, evidently, penis from clay. Isis then hit with the child Horus in the marshes of the Nile Delta until her son was fully grown and could avenge his father and claim his throne. Once he reached adulthood, Horus, with a little help from Isis, though she chickened out in the end resulting in Horus decapitating her, he fought Set for the throne and won, restoring order to Egypt. And here I'm guessing Disney got inspired by that part too with the whole Simba Mufasa scar. At least I'm seeing parallels here. Am I the only one? Let us know in the comments. To wrap it up, Horus became the god of the sky and kingship. His animal persona, the falcon, was seen as the protector of his earthly incarnation, the pharaoh. Set became the god of chaos, violence, and storms, and it was Thoth who judged the battle between Horus and Set, restoring Horus's lost eye and giving Isis the head of a cow after she had been decapitated by Horus. So it was a big-ass giant family affair. And here I thought my family dynamics were buckets full of crazy. And to add on, because, you know, this is my personal favorite of the creator gods, and that is Ma'at, the goddess of truth, justice, balance, and order. And the rule of law, known as the 42 laws of Ma'at, are a set of divine laws transcribed by the ancient Egyptians in or around 2925 BCE. And for those doing the math, that's about 5,000 years ago, my peeps. Or, as my brain really, really liked it, it's 4,949 years ago. Double digits, gotta love it. <clears throat> anyway, that means that it precedes the Ten Commandments by nearly 2,000 years. Two millennia, I'm just saying. And it still holds true today. It's more encompassing, it's less threatening and damning of other non-believers. And I made a few slides on this, which I will be posting on my Instagram account, Let's Review with Layla and You, where, according to the Book of the Dead, every person that died would be judged before Ma'at to determine whether they were truly good and able to move on to the afterlife. A feather was weighed against the soul of the recently departed while they stated the 42 negative confessions. And for that, see the slide where I also added the positive affirmations that were more modernized. If you can live your life according to those 42 rules, I think it means that you 
at least try to be a good person. It's more encompassing and, and comprehensive of life and what it means to be a good person. I think a lot more than the Ten Commandments. But judge for yourself. Let me know what you think. And I have to say, seeing the Thoth symbolizing divine speech and incantations and all of that, clearly very important roles in the history of the ancient Egyptian mythology, I am sad to say that they never actually personified Thoth. Maybe it was a little too larger than life for them to encompass in a single character, which, you know, got to agree. Same with Ma'at. Unfortunately, we never get to see a Ma'at. They kind of stick to the children of the creator gods in Stargate franchise. But that doesn't take away, to wrap this part up, that when they say that Hathor went against her father slash husband Ra, it seems to be directly inspired by the story of Tefnut, and her father, Atum Ra or Ray or whatever, decided to destroy humanity for its disobedience, and in a fury, Tefnut roamed the desert covered in the blood of her human enemies, where in this story she again was a double for the lion-headed goddess of fire, also known as Sekhmet. So that is what I meant when they blended the mythology of the queen of all pharaohs, Isis, with the story of Tefnut being sent to destroy humanity, but then also Sekhmet, who refused. But in the Stargate franchise, Hathor role-playing magical rulebook that they created, apparently they went fully in-depth on Hathor's backstory, and I read a little about it, and it's fucking awesome. So I really do recommend, if you even remotely are interested in the Stargate franchise and Hathor in the Go-Olds, be sure to look into that too, because that is a awesome, awesome addition to this franchise that I wasn't even aware of up until now. Live and learn, live and learn. Then back to our regular scheduled programming. After Daniel got whammied, he uses his supposed expertise to now also sway Hammond to get whammied as well, as he urges Hammond to play into her delusions, allowing Hathor to now breathe on his hand as well. But not before the hilarious moment where she addresses Hammond with you, with the crown of marble, having the men exchange looks, allowing O'Neill to say she might mean you, sir. And that just all of it golden. One of the reasons why I find this episode, at least in that sense, redeemed. It made me laugh. After General Hammond and O'Neill leave, Daniel is left alone with her, and now she does reveal her gold nature to Daniel, and he is clearly under her spell because he seems completely unfazed by this. He now reveals that it was them that killed Ra, and she wishes to celebrate and starts to undress. Daniel is once again about to get lucky. I mean, she is the goddess of pleasure after all. I do find quite interesting that in this franchise, it's all about Daniel's love for Sharae. But also, it's been, what, now 14 episodes? And he's already got lucky multiple times. And we do not hold it against him because every single time, it was basically without consent or like straight up assault like it is here. And we don't talk about it. I'm talking about it now, obviously, because this is apparently so very normalized that this is seen as something that is laughable and acceptable when no, it really isn't or shouldn't.
Daniel enters a briefing room and announces that Hathor is a Goa old, who was imprisoned in stasis on Earth for almost 2,000 years. Although, considering the timeline, I think he should have added a few centuries to that, but whatever. Daniel then tries to convince them that Hathor is a good Goa old, who was imprisoned by Ra because she tried to stop the enslavement of the humans. O'Neill objects to Daniel's request to invite her into the briefing room, and here we get that delightful moment where O'Neill calls out and says, Whoa, Danny, I don't think so. That is the first time, though I hope not the last time, that he calls Daniel Danny. Another, for me, fun moment in this episode. As Hathor had already put the whammy on Hammond, she is allowed to join them in the briefing room. Naturally, Carter remains skeptical, and Tilk even makes it a point to tell that he, in his many years serving the Gold, has yet to meet a good Gold. And then Hammond dismisses him with this stinging remark, or at least it stung to me. Maybe that's because you served the wrong one. And damn, dude, that one hurt. General Hammond, sir. And throughout this episode, though, Donis Davis just plays infatuated so adorably. I mean, this is a man who was in his, what, 50s, 60s? And just that dopey little face. I love it. Again, a reason why I find this episode redeemable, even though the storyline does not hold up whatsoever. She tries to put the whammy on Tilk, and she seems to succeed, but as suspected, we later do learn that this had no effect. Which overall I find odd. Then why would she even attempt to put Tilk under her spell? She would have known that the intoxicating whatever it is that she's doing wouldn't work on a Jaffa. And if that were the case, why then didn't Tilk grab her and lock her ass up right there and then, as soon as he noticed what she was trying to do? As this is never resolved or explained in the episode, I'm guessing we're supposed to assume that the whammy worked on Tilk at least for a little while? I thought that this was weird, because oftentimes throughout the series, Tilk's symbiote protects him from all those easy, simple bullshit thingies that the humans are totally taken in by or killed by. So yeah, that faced me. Like, did I miss something? Or does anyone else remember why this does would then make sense? Apparently, Hathor is not an equal opportunity instigator, for she doesn't even try to put the whammy on Carter, who she does call an exceedingly beautiful woman. That moment is awkward, yet oddly funny, adorable even, maybe, a little. Especially seeing that Carter says, yeah, you too. How they kept straight faces. I have no idea. But that was more of a what is happening moment that was slightly funny instead of, you know, just flat out funny like the earlier moments. I don't know. Just still, every time I watch that scene, that moment, I'm like, it's funny yet weird yet I'm not feeling it. I don't know why. Does anyone share that feeling or understand that feeling better than I'm here not trying to properly fully am able to explain? And on that note, about the whole equal opportunity instigator thing, I want to share with you another reason why I so very much love the ancient Egyptian societal pretty much more than any other current societal norms. For one, virginity was not a necessity for marriage. Premarital sex or any sex between unmarried people was socially acceptable. Once married couples were expected to be sexually faithful to each other, which I fully support both of those statements. The thing that sold me, even back when I was a little girl and made me all the more surprised that now three, four, five thousand years in the future, we are still lagging behind them. For men and women in ancient Egypt were firmly equal. Women were qualified to sue and obtain contracts incorporating any law settlements such as marriage, divorce, property, and jobs. 
I mean, once you moved in together, you were married. Handy! And can we please reinstate that? Also, for the LGBTQ plus family, in ancient Egypt, gay and lesbian couples, even marriage between gay and lesbian couples, was permitted. When it comes to LGBTQ rights, they were treated as equal. When can we implement all of these things yet again, normalize it, and just live our lives again, people? Who's with me? Can you now see why I love this part of our history? And hey, I'm not saying that they were perfect, but damn did they get many things right that we here now 5,000 years later are still struggling to get back or even start to get it normalized again. Do you see my point? The way that people keep calling to their forefathers on how it was better the way that they thought it up, which the colonizer dudes, the enslavers, Doubtful. And referring to them as your role model says so <laughs> much about you. But that's beside the point. To me, these societal norms, societal rules, are the kinds of role models that we need to look to. For the betterment of all of us, this is where I think we should be headed. And with Pluto in Aquarius, I damn sure do hope that we will be getting back to this life where this is normalized. I mean, just the other day, the very Catholic country, Greece, finally legalized gay marriage. I mean, if a seriously Catholic country can finally see the light, I'm thinking we're, you know, making headway. Tragically slowly. But at least it's progress, right? But like the more people that know about this, the ancient Egyptian way of life and how much better it is, Maybe it'll help people wake the fuck up and reinstate this all the faster. Because it, that's what it is. It's reinstatement. Because these are the societies that we are descendants of. Because I don't know what we were doing in Europe, but in ancient Egypt, they were building metropolises, fucking pyramids, while we were still digging in the dirt in Europe. Just saying. For many of us, if you want to look to your ancestors, look to the ones from the continent the vast, vast, vast majority of us came from. These are the ones, historically speaking, proven historically to be our ancestors. Just saying. Back to the episode. Daniel learns that Hathor and others like her create the golds to make more golds using his seed. And yes, they do the nasty. Although not on screen. I mean, of course, hello, it's still a PG rated family friendly show. But still, like once she tries to make more golds with Daniel's seed, he starts to resist a little, but he's still no match for her. Which is again something in this episode that is totally not addressed at all. Daniel was sexually assaulted. And this is the second time. Like we've had O'Neill in Brief Candle, we now have Daniel in this episode, but it's never addressed. But this is why now 25 years later we are reviewing this and are addressing these topics because yes, men can also fall victim to being sexually assaulted by men or women and that is not okay. Potter and Dr. Fraser brainstorm on how Hathor might be controlling their men, and the ladies arm themselves and decide to go on the offensive. But late than ever, I guess. This is when we learn that Tilk is not under Hathor's control and he joins their offensive. Though no reason is given why he only now reveals that he's not under her control. Like that part confused me. He reveals himself now to not be under her control, but he doesn't explain since when. Like, were you under her control for a little bit? Were you never under her control? Then why didn't you do anything? It doesn't get mentioned. Did I miss it? 
I missed it. As the ladies go and find Hathor, they find a seriously traumatized? Let's go with traumatized. Daniel, after his sexual assault, basically, they eventually find Hathor taking a post-coital bath, teeming with baby go-old larva. I'm so very sorry for Sue Ann Brown, because that entire... yeah, that's nasty. Just... yeah. After the ladies are captured, again there's this scene that I kind of sort of do like. I don't really want to say out of character, but it kind of felt a bit out of character. Maybe it was just to see Carter with other women, and that brought out her little sassy against the patriarchy attitude. I do really like that moment where she says, Mama said there'd be days like this. They figure out that the men are all hormone-driven, libidinous, love that word, which now allows the ladies to use their exceeding beauty to seduce the sex-drunk idiots into freeing them and having Carter say, why do I feel like I'm in a Women Behind Bars movie? This episode allowed for some girl time. I really wonder if Amanda Tapping experienced that as such, because she spent most of her day in the show with three men. I love her because that means that she, you know, can clearly stand her ground. Otherwise, like, how do you survive working intimately for so long with three men and apparently Daniel, Michael Shanks, and Till Christopher Judge were besties and had a lot of fun on set. And, I mean, you can see in the TV show that Richard Dean Anderson is also a hoot to work with, so I can only imagine how much fun they had on set, honestly. I would have loved to have walked around on that set and just see them in that habitat. I can only imagine the kind of fun that they had while still creating a very beautifully profound TV show. And like all these remarks and these moments, like I love it. And these are the Stargate magical gems that make me love this show and make me not hate this episode. Because despite all of that, that is still what made this episode funny. Another new development on the whole go old stuff of how did they come into being, we see that Hathor turns O'Neill into a Jaffa as she pulls Jenna Jackson's on the nippy slip, if you know, you know, and reveals this go old device thingy underneath her gown that can apparently turn humans into Jaffa. And on the one hand, it's like, oh, so that's how they do it. On the other hand, later we learn that there are millions upon millions upon millions upon billions of Jaffa. Are you telling me that you do that with every single person? Is that what they did to Raya? Like you reach a certain age and then they hold that thing over your belly and boom, you're a Jaffa. I guess so, but weird and okay. Like these are one of the questions that arose during this episode that wasn't ever fully explained or ever returned to. Like we learn how the golds are made or spawned, both in this episode, which doesn't hold up in later episodes when they completely change the whole queen bee of it all. But this is the only ever explanation on how Jaffas are born slash created, I think, right? If I'm wrong, please do let us know in the comments. Now we see that Hathor emerges from the hot tub filled with her itty bitty maggots. And why did they leave this scene, which is so very obviously played backwards? Why was she submerged? Why did she emerge not wet? Just why this choice of playback or edit or, I don't know, it continues to weird me out every time I see it. She now places an O'Neill inside of the hot tub where the others overhear that she turned him into a Jaffa and soon a larva will mature enough to enter his womb, finalizing his transformation to a Jaffa. 
She then conveniently leaves, allowing Fraser and Carter to save O'Neill, rummaging around his womb to check that nothing swam in there with delightful sound effects. And as soon as he's free and clear, they decide to use that oh-so-handy sarcophagus in the gate room to heal O'Neill back to his pre-Jaffa state. And of course, having such a device on hand is just way too convenient. And soon after O'Neill is healed, they devise a setup which allows them to destroy the sarcophagus. But not before O'Neill's healed, of course. And Carter, doing her due diligence, inspects O'Neill's abs, checking that he is back to full human status, with her saying, wow, that's a miracle. And O'Neill seemingly having completely spaced out on all that has happened since he got drugged, he thinks she's referencing his abs and hilariously responds with crunches. Again, bad episode, but these gems love it! And now where the episode again turned, I found stupid and a little misogynistic. For only now does Carter learn that the base also stores tranquilizer guns. And yes, that would make sense, especially when your own people are duped and you don't want to actually, you know, kill them. With these tranquilizer guns, they now suddenly quite easily retake the entire base. And here I do like that they have O'Neill say, this is the military, we always have more than we need. Your tax dollar at work. And just to remind all of y'all, this was filmed in 1997. So this was clearly, even back then, known. And realized that this is before 9-11. This is before the War on Terror, where they only added a shit ton more military budgets. So this is a persistent problem that we continuously choose to normalize, but I do appreciate it that despite the whole misogyny of it all, they have O'Neill reference this. Clearly, the writers also had this opinion that this is just not okay, people. Going from fiction to non-fiction, this is one of the things that, god, I hope we address in the next few decades. Especially now that we're at the brink of war, it needs to be addressed. We keep pumping billions and billions of dollars into it, and still, no matter what, we keep ending up in world wars and in genocides. And just as you claim that guns aren't the problem, people are the problem because they shoot the guns, I think we here we again have to state it's the people that's the problem it's the mentality it's the choices that we make it's human nature but it doesn't have to be because it's the under evolved underdeveloped part of our human nature that makes us continuously fight on such a grand scale that we might actually in our generation or the next either kill ourselves by accident or on purpose or have killed the planet which then kills us because we only still have one planet so there we go again existential exposition sorry back to the episode the next scene we again see Hathor in the hot tub and I mean why? Why did you keep putting the woman in the hot tub? Honestly. We see that Daniel is now apparently over his traumatizing sexual assault. He is once again kissing her ass. And this scene they lost me completely. Again. How does this even remotely make sense? If someone can make this make sense to me please do share because I'm lost. Carter shoots Hathor though she's in a tub. Some catches fire. How? You're literally in a tub of water. 
And a lot of people have pointed out that they made an editing mistake because you see Hathor walking away, but no, people. The Keen Eyed Observer is supposed to see Hathor get out of the tub and walk away. For next, we hear unauthorized gate activation, and we see Hathor including her now once again weird headdress that has no affiliation to any mythological attributed personificating accents whatsoever to the Hathor persona, which she apparently still had time to grab even though she was making a run for it. And they see her go through the gate to Chulak. Luckily though, as soon as she's left the building, Daniel snaps out of it, revealing that close proximity apparently is needed for them to stay under Hathor's control. Hammond puts Carter and Fraser up for commendation, although Carter apparently was expecting to be reprimanded after she had to knock out General Hammond. The groveling here I found annoying. You save the planet by tranquilizing, punching out the men, knocking out General Hammond, and by going after Hathor. In another setting, I would not expect, I cannot recall ever seeing a man grovel this badly after having saved the world. The way that it's done, in my eyes, is not about her respecting her superior officer. Because you were well within your rights. He was under the influence and not mentally competent. And this, in my eyes, just seriously diminishes the girl power that we had in this episode that they, yes, granted, only displayed for like a second or five with eventually O'Neill and his tranquilizer guns and Tilk helping out instead of it just being the woman saving the day. I found disappointing looking back on it, especially now, 25 years later. Am I alone in this? Did you view this differently? Please do share. Again, that's why we do this, sharing and caring. I really wonder how other people experience this part of the episode. As you can clearly tell, once I don't particularly like an episode, I derail a bit. In this case, digging into the mythology or something else in an episode that I could easily instead expand on. So in doing so, I do hope that these derailments offer some additional possibly educational value to the review, or if it's just, you know, endless rambles. Skip past it, I guess. Like, does this add anything to you or did it diminish the episode? Let me know in the comments and let me know what you thought of the Stargate episode, what you thought of my review episode. Just what... Are your thoughts on all of it. We are here for it. In our next episode, we are going to be learning a little bit about black holes and Nakura, the mineral that the Stargate is made of. We get to see a maternal side of Carter, and overall, I really like this episode and found it quite moving, so I wonder what all y'all think. Please do tune in. For additional reviews and content on a variety of subjects in addition to this franchise, come check out our podcast channel, as well as our Instagram account, Let's Review with Leila and You. For additional in-depth content, as well as provide us with a place for reciprocation where we can all share and exchange our ideas, thoughts, and whatever else we feel like sharing with the world. So come meet up with me, myself, and I, drop a comment, give us a follow, and come share what y'all think. And to truly make this the all-inclusive podcast we set it out to be, come visit us in the RSS community where all our episodes come with a transcript. We do hope to see you there.